God, thank you that nothing can separate us from you. Um, if we are in you, thank you that that we have that. We have that peace. We have that grace. We have that mercy. Uh, it's forever ours. I pray that you just speak through Michael. Uh, you would encourage our hearts. Uh, you would open our hearts just to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have a, a one or two more songs to sing at the end today. And I haven't made a mistake yet. My fact that I am a, a creature of the fall is evident in the bulletin in a couple of ways. Uh, Garrett's birthday is not today, but wish him a birthday anyway, it's tomorrow. And you may be thinking, well, that Chad guy gets birthdays about every six months. Um, his birthday actually is this week. It wasn't last October when it was in the bulletin. I don't know why it showed up then. So we, uh, we muddle through with things like that. So, uh, you can read the rest of those announcements. I think the rest of them are correct. But if you find another mistake, tell me later. We are in the midst of a series on the life of Jacob. Lauren, would you get that light for me, please? Uh, and this is uh, number 11 of 12. We will uh, put Jacob to rest next week. We will stop wrestling for a while. Um, Though keep in mind that God will continue to wrestle with us uh, through life. But this is uh, 11 of 12, and then we will have one week in between, and then on March 18th we will begin uh, a series in the book of Colossians. We'll work through that book slowly. That'll take us through uh, sometime uh, this summer. And I'm looking forward uh, to working through that book with you as we talk about um, what is the grace of God in truth? What does it look like? Uh, what does it look like for us? What's it look like for uh, things like our families? We're going to talk about husbands and wives. We're going to talk about parents and kids. Um, and we'll get to step on everybody's toes in here between now and the end of that book, as well as what your faith looks like and um, as you relate to God. But Jacob got to relate to God last week. In fact, he wrestled with him. He had an encounter with the living God. And the question that I want to pose for us is, should that make any difference in our life? When we encounter God face to face, as Jacob did, should it matter? We've seen Jacob kind of in and out of, of dealing with God for 20 plus years, and he hadn't changed much. He's a scoundrel. He's a deceiver. He is a manipulator. And he showed up last week still carrying that name where he was the subject. Jacob means the one who deceives or the one who grabs the heel. Jacob was the subject of his own life and he ordered his own life the way he wanted to for his purposes and his ways. But when we left last week, Jacob had a name change and he was no longer the subject. God was. Israel. God strives. God contends. God has now become, in a sense, the subject of his life. Did he change? Should he have changed? I think we should probably look at that and go, yeah, he, he should have. And so the question is, is did he? And the question for us this morning is, will we? We are in Genesis chapter 33. I'm going to read that entire chapter this morning. So would you follow along, beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. 
So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids, and he put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he, Jacob, said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, No, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God. And you have received me favorably. Please take my gift which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. As he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us take our journey and go and I will go before you. But he said to him, my Lord knows the children are frail, that the flocks and herds that are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my own leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built for himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the place is named Sukkoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohei Israel. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the truth that is in it. I pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our understanding, ultimately our wills, that we might do your will. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, change can be very subtle, especially if we have a preconceived idea about what someone is like. Uh, we've known them for a long time, like in a sense we've known Jacob for a long time, and we just assume that he is the way he always is. And we begin to read and we think, yeah, he's just the same as he always is. He saw the 400 men, so he divided his children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. See, he's doing it again. He's dividing things up. Well, except this isn't quite like last time. There are some differences. Number one, last time the text very clearly said he was afraid and he was doing it so that if Esau attacked one, the others could escape. There's no mention of that in the text this time. There's no mention of fear. There's no mention of strategy. And if it was a strategy, it's a lousy one. He just lines them all up. These first, these behind, these behind. 400 men could very easily flank a bunch of women and children in a straight line. If he's being manipulative, if he's being deceptive, if he's trying to save his own hide, at least up to this point, he's doing a poor job of it. But then also he does something he's not done before. He gets in front himself. Before he divided his family and he kind of stayed behind. 
But now he's ahead. And he's not just ahead, he's ahead and he's bowing down seven times. It, it seems from other sources that we have that that is a very common way for uh, a vassal, someone who is under someone's authority to approach their Lord. You bow down, whatever you're bringing, you line up and then you present what needs to be presented. Jacob is not dividing for protection, he's dividing for presentation. Granted, in his own mind, right or wrong, lesser to greater, he favors Rachel, he's still putting her last. But he's approaching Esau now as a different person. Not as one who's afraid, but one who has courage. I'm going to get in front. Whatever happens will happen to me first. And he's doing so humbly. You see, remember way back at the beginning when Isaac blessed Jacob and he said, your brothers will bow down to you. That's a promise. It's the, the blessing from the father. Jacob doesn't have to bow down to Esau. It's not required. And yet, because now I think he understands that God is the one who strives, God is the one who contends, he can he can approach Esau both with courage and with humility. Courage in the fact that if God is striving, what do I have to fear? Humility, if, if God is striving, why do I have to do it, be who I've thought I've tried to be all along? Why do I have to be someone that I'm not? I can approach Him and be humble and be gracious. See, Jacob doesn't know Esau's motives. Jacob still, I'm assuming, has to assume the worst. Remember, last time he left, 20 years ago, Esau wanted to kill him. There's no indication up to this point that anything is any different. But he's encountered God. He's encountered the one who strives, the one who contends, and it appears at least that he's putting his trust in God. He's going before his family. He's bowing down. He's being courageous. And at the same time, he's being humble. And it also doesn't seem like this is just a ploy that's going to go away. Esau approaches him and falls on his neck and hugs him, embraces him, kisses him, and they weep. And at this point in time, Jacob should realize, oh, everything's okay. I can go back to my own ways. And yet he still continues to use the language of servant and Lord. He doesn't withdraw the gift once Esau says, Ah, take it, I don't need it. He continues to offer it. He continues to say, I, I want to make amends. Remember, I, I stole your blessing. Verse 11 in the NAS says, Please take my gift. Literally, please take my blessing. It's stirring up all those old emotions. Remember, I stole your blessing. I'm returning a blessing to you. He's, he's making restitution. He's making amends. Jacob didn't have to do that because his father said, your brothers will bow down to you. Yet the encounter with God changed him. The question then obviously for us is, if we encounter God and, and if we say that we have Christ in our life, then we have. His Holy Spirit dwells in us, then do we have those same characteristics? 
I think those are two very common characteristics that we all should have if we've encountered God. Humility and courage. Humility because if God really is who He says He is, again, we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves. We shouldn't think, oh, it's all up to me. And courage because if God really is who He says He is, then what really is there to be afraid of? Guys, let me talk to you for a moment, those of you who are husbands. A great example of this, of practicing humility, is with your wife. When Paul is writing to women, he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. See, there's a command to women and then there's a statement of why. And a lot of times us guys think, well, it's up to us to become the head of our wives. It's up to us to, to, to make sure that happens. It's up to us to put our best foot forward and, and make sure they understand, really, I'm in charge. The problem is, that's not a command to husbands. It's a statement to women of, of why they should behave the way they should behave. If you drop down to verse 25, there is a command to husbands. And it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. It's sacrificial love. It's not authoritative, God said, I'm the head, you do what I say. It's sacrificial love. You see, the problem with dictators is they're really not in charge. In a sense, someone who has put their best foot forward or put their most powerful foot forward to take control of the situation does so through oftentimes fear and manipulation. And God says husbands are to, to love like Christ loved the church. How do you do that? Well, He died for the church. He gave everything for the church. He was head, and yet He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But see, we live in a, a culture that says, guys, you've got you to take control of things. You've got to take, take things by the horns, right? In Florida, you take the alligator by the tail. I don't know what you do up north. Is there any dangerous animals that live in the north? I don't know. In Texas, you take the bull by the horn. I don't know what you do up north, sorry, if you're from there, but... That's how we feel, right? We feel like we have to take control. But when we do that, really we're losing control. Subjects don't respect dictators. They don't honor dictators. They don't love dictators. And if we as husbands say, I'm going, I'm going to be the head of this household by putting our thumb down, we have failed to do what God calls us to do. To love sacrificially. For those of you who are not yet married, men, young men. When I was 17 years old, I had a girlfriend. And some holiday, I don't remember what it was, Thanksgiving, Christmas, I can't remember, was invited to the family celebration. It was aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and parents. And so my number one goal, of course, was to make a good impression. That's all I was thinking about anyway. After dinner, mom asked the girl if she would wash dishes. And of course, if I'm trying to make a good impression, what am I going to do? I'm going to offer to help, right? 
That's what you're supposed to do, right? If, if you're trying to get in good with the family, you, you offer to help. You offer to come alongside the cute girl and say, this is what I'm going to do. After we finished doing that, the grandmother pulled me aside and she said, now, Michael, there's nothing wrong with what you did, but if you started doing that, you need to always continue. If you're washing dishes because you like her, it's something you should always do. If you're washing dishes to make an impression, don't bother starting. You're wasting your time. How did she know? It's like she could read my mind. That's great advice, guys. When that cute girl catches your eye, and at some point in time she will, right? Are you going to be humble towards her, serve her, be sacrificial towards her as the beginning of a pattern of a way of life? Or are you going to be like Jacob was and manipulate the situation? Uh, try to get in on someone's good side. Try to impress them. Don't ever sell a sister in Christ a bill of goods. Don't ever put that foot forward in, in hopes of getting something out of a relationship that you don't intend to continue. Uh, number one, there's lots of guys in this part who have guns and know how to use them. I wouldn't be wise. <laughs> but, but seriously, we dishonor our Heavenly Father when we present one face and then as time passes and we think that we've, we've snagged the catch that we say, ah, I can let that go away. Young or old, whether we've, we've, we've not even begun this process, we've been in a long time, that's something we all need to think about myself included. Are we content in the fact that we, we have our prize and we slack off the things that at one point in time we did? Humility. You think we might talk to the guys about courage, but no, really, guys do a pretty good job of, of bravado. We need to learn humility, service, sacrifice. What about the ladies? Well, Really, a lot of times, what ladies need, especially young ladies, I'm talking to you now. Courage is what you need. Because of who God is, you can be courageous. I have seen for years and years as a teacher, young gals forfeiting their values, compromising on what they believe out of fear of something. Largely, the culture. The culture says, if I'm going to be attractive or special or noticed or the right kind of girl, then I will compromise my values. It's not worth it. The culture is not who you have to answer to anyway. But even closer in, I've seen over and over again, a girl try to fit in with another group of girls and they'll compromise what they think is right. They'll become a, a gossip when they weren't one to fit in. Uh, they'll become someone who uh, talks about other people to fit in. They'll become someone who relates differently to their parents than they did to fit in. They'll hear one of their friends uh, back talk or say something unkind to a parent. They'll go, oh, I can do that. My friend does that and gets away with it. It's okay with me. But it takes courage to say, I'm willing to give up a friendship. 
I'm willing to, to not be part of that crowd to hold on to my integrity. To not give up my values. To not compromise what I believe. And then, if you think that doing what that guy wants you to do, because if you don't, I, that might be the only one. That might be my last chance. That should be your last chance with, with that one. Will you have the courage to say, no, I have values, I have standards that I'm not going to compromise. And, and really, if, if God says we're not to be unequally yoked, wouldn't it make sense that that guy that wants you to compromise your values is not the one that you need anyway? That there really is someone else out there? Do we have the courage to trust God that He's contending for you? That He has someone in mind for you who actually will love you and sacrifice for you? You need to hold on to the courage because of who God is. Because He contends. He strives for you. You don't have to fear... Losing a relationship. Maybe it's not worth having. Ultimately, while this passage is about Jacob gaining courage and, and developing a sense of humility, ultimately this passage is about reconciliation. These two brothers who had been at odds and separated for 20 years have come back together. There is embracing there is weeping. There is hugs and kisses. There's genuine reconciliation, it seems. But it's a model really on both sides of what that looks like. You see, some of us are, are like Jacob. We need to ask for forgiveness. We've wronged someone as Jacob has done. And for some of us, that means we need to spend some time this week thinking, how do I word that letter? What do I say when I pick up the phone or when I go knock on the door? Some of us need to begin the process of reconciliation. We need to ask for forgiveness. That doesn't look like, um, sorry, I, I didn't... I, it's not a fumbling, mumbling, I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm bad. It's not a self-loathing. It's, it's, it's courage... And humility, I was wrong when I, you fill in the blank, will you forgive me? It also may mean that there's restitution that needs to be made, depending on what it is. Jacob, I think, was making restitution. He was, in a sense, returning a blessing to his brother. But some of us may need to write a letter or pick up the phone. And seek forgiveness for a wrong that we have done. But some of us may be more like Esau. We have been hurt and hurt badly. Some of you have been hurt a whole lot worse than Esau has been hurt. Some of you have had your innocence, your purity, your honor robbed or stolen. Some of you may have been betrayed by a good friend. Some of you may have felt abandoned and left alone, abused and, and hurt, and you think, I just don't think I can forgive. 
Esau may not be the best example of that. But he certainly was willing to. He certainly had. He fell on his brother and kissed him, not even knowing if Jacob had changed or not. But there's a a better example. Because there was a father whose son was taken from him by the actions of, well, of, of me and of you. There was a father who had his son, his only son, his beloved son, murdered because of what you and I did. And Jesus, while He was hanging on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And I say, well, of course they knew what they were doing. Those Roman soldiers were very good at driving nails through people's hands. Those religious leaders knew exactly what they were doing. They were getting rid of a threat. But Jesus said, they don't really know what they're doing. They think they're finding security and peace. And they're not. They're, they're missing something. And, and the pain of having a child, those of you who are parents, think about how you would feel towards someone if they were responsible for the death of your child. On purpose. And God forgave us through Christ. Now that doesn't mean that that's easy. When we have been hurt, when we have been wounded, when we've been damaged, forgiveness is hard. But it has to begin, I believe, with the realization of the fact that that we have been forgiven. And our offense is against the Almighty God. And our offense was enough to send Christ to the cross. It may not be that that your forgiveness has to necessarily be in person, but it it may be that there's a letter that you need to write that really never gets sent, that that person may or may not need to really hear from you. But it might be helpful to allow God to work through you to sit down and and think through what that looks like. and, And maybe that letter gets buried. Maybe it gets burned up. But we all need to go through the process of Am I willing to be like my... If I have encountered God, if God is the one who strives, am I willing to forgive? Because He forgave me. I want us to to think about that this week a little bit. That, That debt that God forgave us. As we approach celebrating the resurrection in a few weeks. Last week I asked you to think about who you would be if it weren't for God. What would your name be? What would you be called? Jacob, the deceiver. And I wanted you to dwell on those things. Who would you be? I know Christians are supposed to be joyful and happy. Why do you keep talking about sin and making me think on bad things? But light shines brightest in the darkness. And I do want this year as we celebrate the resurrection to be incredibly bright. And so for one more week, I want you to think about something else involving who we were. You thought, hopefully, about who you were. If you were to be named without God, who would it be? I want us to think about this week about how big that gap is between who you were 
and who God is. Now, the temptation for me is to immediately go, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. The gap's not quite that big. But picture this with me. We're in San Diego. It's a beautiful day. Sunshine. We're on the beach. And we're all going to start swimming. From the youngest to the oldest, we're going to take off. Some of us won't get very far. Some of us, with depending on how the waves are, might get 50 yards before we go under and we're done. Some of us 100 yards. Some of us might get one or two miles before we wear out. Some people in here may be in good enough shape to get 10 miles, 20 miles. Let's say maybe even 100 miles. But what if the goal was Japan? That's 5,500 miles. That would be like, if you could make it 100 miles, and I'm not sure anybody here could, that would be like a 100-yard dash and you making it two yards before you fell down and succumbed. It's kind of pathetic, really, isn't it? A 100-yard dash isn't that far, and for you to make it two, and for those of us who could only make it maybe one or two miles before we went under, you know, that'd be like getting a few inches off the starting block before we were done. It's really not even close, is it? See, no matter what we've done, no matter how good or bad we think we are, that's our sin compared to what we should be, compared to God's righteousness. It's, it's a hundred-yard dash and us getting out of the blocks about three or four inches. So I want us to dwell on that this week. That gap that the resurrection closed. I want us to think how big that gap really is. Because God reconciled us. Right? We couldn't swim that. If you get on Google and type in San Diego to Tokyo, uh, it'll, for some reason, send you up to Washington and put you on a kayak and say, kayak across the Pacific. Really, it will. Do it. Try it. <laughs> but I'm not even sure any of us could kayak across the Pacific. We need power. We need someone to come along with a boat that's got a motor or we won't make it. And that's what the cross did. It gave us the power to bridge that gap. And so this week, I want you to think about that because I want the celebration of the resurrection in a few weeks to be glorious. And again, light shines brightest when it is dark. And so we need to think. Paul says, remember you who are formerly Gentiles, separate from God, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and without hope in the world. It's not unbiblical to think about who we were. To dwell on that because it reminds us of how great God is. Would you pray with me, please? <laughs> Father, thank You for today and thank You for um, Your Word. Thank You for the example of Jacob. Thank You for allowing us to see at least a glimpse of the change in Him. As we continue to look at Him for one more week, um, we will see that He is not a finished product. And I'm thankful for that too, God. But I pray that You would allow us this week to think about those things, courage and humility. God, remind us that You are the one who strives and we can, because of that, be courageous and we can be humble. 
And remind us, because you have reconciled us to yourself, if we have encountered you, if we are to be like your children, you desire for us to reconcile with others. So God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the humility to do that as well. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.